let's see, Smarsh, Burkamp, Baumholt, yep. Hilger, lots of germ. oh, look there, there's a Knobloch, Paul, there it is, look at that gravesite, it's got his picture embedded in the gravestone. Episode 20, Fatherland. I'm Merle Riedel, and you're listening to a January 17, 2006 podcast from the Kansas State Historical Society. Every two weeks, curators will reveal the story behind the story for museum artifacts featured on the Cool Things section of our website, kshs.org. Today, Rebecca Martin, Assistant Director of the Kansas Museum of History, tells us about a memorial card from 1918. She'll explain why a card intended to memorialize an American soldier who died in World War I was printed in German. Was this Kansas boy a German sympathizer? Good afternoon, Rebecca Martin, Assistant Director at the Kansas Museum of History. And uh, we're here today. I'm just going to ask you some questions about a memorial card in the collection. And um, to set it up a little bit, we heard your voice at the beginning uh, of the podcast. You actually uh, were on the road for this podcast doing some research. You went out to a cemetery um, just north of Wichita. But before we get into that, uh, I'm just going to ask you uh, some questions about the card itself. Sure. Um, This particular memorial card uh, was intended to memorialize the death of a Paul Knobloch. Am I saying that right? Uh, Knobloch. Knobloch, I'm sorry. Uh, an American soldier, and he died during World War I. Uh, but this card is a little bit different. It's written all in German. Uh, why is it in German? It was written in German or printed in German because it was intended for circulation in a German-speaking community. That's the bottom line. Uh, Paul was born in a, a community of German immigrants. He was born in America, but he grew up in a community that spoke German for many years after the settlement, probably around the 1870s and 1880s. Uh, for many years thereafter, that was their first language. Um, and uh, obviously, the memorial card was intended for a German audience when it was printed um, shortly after World War One, say around 1919 or 19. Can you tell us? Can you tell us a little bit about what the memorial card looks like? Sure, and people can see it on our website too, on the Cool Things page. Um, the card has uh, it's it's actually you can't tell on the website, but it folds at the center. It's a pretty small little card, maybe a couple inches across by about three or four high. When you open it up, you see a picture of Paul Knobloch on the right, and then you see on the left a summary of the major events in his life, along with a U.S. flag, which I think is very interesting and a bit incongruous when you first see it, because you see this German text and you see the date 1917, 19, or dates 1917, uh, uh, 1918 on it, and um, you see a U.S. flag. Mm-hmm. And if you know anything about history, Germany was the aggressor during World War I, as with World War II. 
So it's disconcerting to see that German text uh, associated with a U.S. flag. Mm -hmm. Uh, And when you get the translation of the text, you uh, also find that they're saying that he died a hero's death for his country. Well, he was a U.S. soldier. Uh, so it's another another thing that's a bit uh, unsettling is to see that they're saying in Germany that he died for the fatherland, which was the United States. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that really attracted me to this card. Um, Knobloch grew up in Mount Vernon, a German community outside of Wichita. Uh, what do you think life was like for Knobloch in Mount Vernon? Well, when he when Paul was living there, and he was born in the 18, early 1890s and lived there probably until he was drafted or enlisted in the Army in 1917, um, it, it was very pretty much insulated from the outside world yet. Uh, there were vehicle cars around, but really a lot of rural communities in Kansas um, could maintain their uh, cultural traditions if they were settled by immigrants well into the 20th century. So Paul grew up around German-speaking people. Um, He spoke German himself, undoubtedly. He had to. Um, Also, he he probably was taught in a mixture of German and English in the schools at that time. Before Mm -hmm. World War I, it wasn't uncommon for them to teach in the German language in these rural communities, uh, German uh, settled communities. That changed a lot after two world wars with Germany, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and he also probably was pretty poor. His family was pretty poor. They were farmers. They came over here for opportunity. Uh, they didn't have much. So I think he, he led almost undoubtedly a pretty simple life. And he, you said his parents were immigrants. He was first generation. Yes. Um, so his parents came from Germany. Um, a lot of those people that settled in that area came from Germany. Why is it that such a large amount of immigrants to Kansas were from Germany? And is that unique to Kansas, or is that like across the United States? Uh, I think Germans uh, up until maybe the middle of the 20th century were certainly in the top of the immigrants to the U.S., top groups of immigrants to the U.S. Uh, in terms of numbers. Um, in Kansas, I can speak definitely to these German communities in Kansas, what was going on, and certainly the Great Plains, too, um, at this time. With any immigration, wave of immigration, there is a push-pull factor. There are factors pushing them out of their homeland and pulling them to the new country. And for these particular Germans uh, in Kansas, what was pushing them out of Germany was a series of wars that united Germany as a single state or empire. Mm-hmm. Um, but added to that, uh, at the, the time, a lot of the Catholic um, priests and bishops supported states' rights at a time when they were trying to unify the country into a single uh, a single entity. So the first chancellor, the first German chancellor, in turn, started um, basically expelling a lot of the priests, imprisoning the bishops. So for ca- German Catholics in particular, the late 1860s into the 1870s was a really tough time to be over there. Uh, the pull factor to come over here was land and opportunity. Um, these people were farmers. Uh, in the United States at this time, uh, to encourage the growth of the railroads, the, the uh, railroads to span the state or the country, uh, the government was granting them land subsidies. Uh, and in Kansas alone, the Atchison, Topeka, and Santa Fe Railroad had almost three million acres of land that they could sell to subsidize the development of these lines. So um, they marketed, in particular, farmers in Europe. 
uh, and they they knew you know they knew that Germany was ripe for uh, the picking in terms of settlers because there were farmers there and there was there was all this uh, war going on and persecution going on. So they actually sent agents into Europe in Europe, many European countries. They printed flyers in German. They circulated them. Um, and this was all designed to sell the railroad's land to farmers who were going to have to ship their grain to market on these railroads for a fee. So it, it was, you know, a, it was a mutually beneficial arrangement. Um, Knobloch died in 1918 during World War One, and this this uh, memorial card uh, was was probably handed out at a memorial service for mm-hmm. him. Um, what was Knobloch's? I think I said it wrong earlier. What was Knobloch? What was Knobloch's role in World War One? Uh, he was a corporal in the. Uh, let's see. I'm going to get this wrong. I apologize in advance to all the military people out there. Uh, I don't know military that well. He was a corporal in the Seventh Infantry. Is that right, Merle? Seventh Infantry, mm-hmm. which was with the Third Division. Correct. Okay. Whew. Dodge that bullet. Um, the Third Division was very active in World War One. They were involved in some campaigns that people who don't know much about World War One nevertheless know the, the words, like the Marne, uh, the Meuse, the Argonne, um, some really bloody campaigns. Uh, Paul died uh, either, it was in the middle or late October, we're not entirely sure what day. Uh, he died in the Meuse, Argonne, uh, outside a small town called Clary. And uh, this is northwest of Verdun. Another what, name. What was it called? Clary. C L E R Y. And that, indeed, the, his obituary card says he's buried in the soldier cemetery at Clary. Um, so that was one of the reasons I went on this quest to try and find his gravesite because we wondered was he still buried in France or was he back in the United States? What, what tipped you off that he may not actually still be buried in France? Uh, one of the curators here at the museum did a web search by his name because, of course, Krablach is not a really common uh, name. So you're going to find, I mean, it is in Germany, but you're going to find a lot of hits or, or uh, a much narrower focus of hits when you search on the internet. So we fi- found Paul's name listed on a a possible list of uh, burials in Kingman County, which is where Paul's hometown was. Mm -hmm. Um, And it it said, the the, uh, genealogy list said he may or may not have been buried in Kingman County. So I wanted to find out were his remains actually here in the United States or was he still buried in France as his memorial card indicated? Mm -hmm. Uh, You said he... Uh, Knobloch was buried in France, um, and then uh, later he came back to the United States because you saw where he's buried at now. Um, how is it? What's the story? Why? Why the journey back to uh, Kansas several years after his death? Um, I was in contact with a curator at the Liberty Memorial in Kansas City. It's called now the National um, World War One Museum in Kansas City, Missouri. And uh, he explained to me this was actually a very common thing. And he also sent me some of the Army regulations from that time period. What happened to Paul was very typical for World War I soldiers. Uh, he was buried in a cemetery very near where he had fallen in France. This is in the Army regs that commanders are to make every effort to bury fallen soldiers with some sort of indication who they are. Uh, with the intention of repatriating their remains after the war or whenever it becomes practicable. So 
Paul died very close to the end of the war, um, was buried in, in France, and then sometime after the war, his family was contacted um, by the government. Specifically by, I think it's the Grave um, Repatriation Group of the Army at that time. Um, and the government offered to repatriate his remains to the home, his hometown at their expense, at the government's expense. And his family, uh, of course, took him up, took them up on that offer. Not all families did. Uh, this was very common after the war, after 1918, 1919, all the way into the mid-1930s, which was at the time you saw the rise of Nazi Germany and things became pretty intense in Europe. So mm -hmm. um, they ceased um, repatriating remains around that time. Now we're going to talk a little bit about your trip. In doing research on this, you wanted to you wanted to actually go and check out, see if you could locate uh, Paul's gravesite. Mm -hmm. um, so you want to tell us a little bit about your trip, and then we're going to listen to a couple clips. Um, that you recorded while you were on your trip because you took somebody with you. I did. I took my father. Right. And uh, my father, Leon Martin, is a descendant of Paul Knobloch. And actually, this memorial card is something that had been passed down in my family. And uh, we were going through some of my grandmother's belongings and found an entire box full of obituary cards, many of them printed in German. Um, and this one struck my eye as a uh, as a professional at a museum in particular because of the, what we've just been talking about. It's printed in German, but he was a U.S. soldier. Mm -hmm. uh, so I really, really wanted this piece and convinced my father to donate it to the um, museum. Now, I wanted to take him along because he also grew up near this community in another German-American community, and he could speak to uh, what it was like growing up during the Second World War uh, in a German-speaking community when, the obviously, Germany is the bad guy, and a lot of people are very concerned about espionage um, in, in the broader community, broader culture, and you know, being a German speaker was not a good thing. Okay, so let's go ahead and listen to the clips. But at that same time, we had uh, Hockenbrock, who was a German from Liebenthal, was our pastor, in from 50 to, well, now let me think, 40 to 50. And about once a month, and I'm not sure if that's right, he would have a German sermon, along with his pounding and everything else. Uh, ranting and pounding <laughs> yeah. on the pulpit. He would, man, he would be shouting and, and all in German, and of course, I couldn't understand a word of it. And that was in the 1940s still? Yes. Or, that and was, so so yeah. they felt free enough that they could have uh, sermons in German still. Uh, one of the requirements in those days was, and I remember my grandma's concern was, can uh, the priest that's going to be replacing, can he understand German? Because they wanted to go to confession in German. and. And if they couldn't understand that, why that was a travesty. How would how would they survive that? That concludes episode twenty, Fatherland. Next time, curator Laura Van Orsdale will tell us about a man who spent an inordinate amount of time at a health spa in north central Kansas. Was he a playboy or a hypochondriac? Can't get enough of Kansas history in podcast form? Don't worry, we've got more. Click on a Kansas Memory Podcast from our homepage, kshs.org, and listen to the letters of Kansans who lived among the guerrilla warfare of bleeding Kansas. 
This podcast has been a production of the Kansas State Historical Society. Oh,